Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. Today we're going to be talking about discipleship. And um, if I had to guess, I'd say there are probably at least six, six different, uh, when I say that word, there are probably at least six different definitions of what a disciple is that uh, leap to mind for you. And, and sometimes the best way to define a concept like discipleship is to, is to share some word pictures of, of what it means to, to be a disciple. And, a, and I'd like to share some of those with you from disciples in other countries and what it means to be a disciple where they are right now. The first is a, a letter from a, a young Christian mom named Martha in Baghdad. She says, God is good all the time, and I would like to share how we are doing in Baghdad. We're not doing well. Since the attack on one of the churches and the killing of more than 50 people. When you hear the stories of those who were in that church, you cannot hold your tears. The situation was so hard, even beyond our imagination. We are seeing with our hearts, minds, and eyes what it does mean to be Christian. The Christians have stayed in their homes as long as possible, but they cannot protect their families from the hand of terrorists. The extremists continued killing Christians in their homes. I am reading the Bible in a different way than I ever read it before. Now I can understand Paul when he said, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now Martha, again, says that uh, Christianity without suffering is tasteless. She says, I got a message on my phone. Please be careful because they killed many Christians today. They're also collecting information about Christians in our areas. Take care. Martha asks that we would keep us in our prayers. Ask the Lord to let us speak always about him and his love and to be faithful to him in our faith, action, word, and prayer. God is so good, and I love him so much. God bless you, Martha. Here's the story of uh, another disciple, a 26-year-old young man in Afghanistan. His name is Shoeb Asadullah. He was arrested October 21, 2010, after he gave a New Testament to a man who later reported him to authorities in northern Afghanistan. On December 28, a judge told Shoeb he had one week to recant his Christian faith. If he refused, he could be sentenced to death or given a 20-year prison sentence. Three days later, Shoeb told a friend that his life was completely in the hands of Jesus. He said, without my faith, I would not be able to live. Shortly before his sentencing, Shoeb told friends to tell all my brothers and sisters, especially my Afghan brothers and sisters, that my faith is strong. He also said that he was not afraid of death. Shortly thereafter, he was saddened to learn that his mother had died while he was in prison. 
She died both in spirit and in body, he said. Most recently, an attorney met with Shoab in prison and offered to free him if he would give up his faith. Shoab refused, and his statement was added to his file. The courts have returned to jail for another six months without a hearing. Disciples in Indonesia. A Muslim mob in Indonesia attacked a judge for being too lenient after he sentenced local Christian Antonius Bawangan to a maximum allowable sentence of five years in prison for distributing Christian tracts in the area last October. Both the judge and Bawangan had to be rescued from the mob, which was shouting that Bawangan deserved the death sentence and should be handed over to the public. The mob then burned three local churches, one of which you see in in the uh, picture on the screen, and beat some of their pastors severely. The violence only subsided after police in riot gear used tear gas on the crowd. Uh, A recent report indicated that attacks on Christians in Indonesia are, there are six times more attacks uh, in 2010 than there were in 2009. Uh, Finally, the church in Iran, our brothers and sisters in Christ in Iran, Uh, Since Christmas, more than 70 Christians, some of whom you see on your screen, have been arrested in a large and well-coordinated government action against Iran's Christian house church movement. Those charged with trying to convert Muslims face possible death sentences. Tehran's governor said in a recent speech that evangelicals, Christian evangelicals, are corrupt and deviant. Seven men and women recently released on bail said that they were subjected to months of solitary confinement, interrogation, and psychological torture. They'd been charged simply with being Christians. Other Christians have been held under the same circumstances for months at a time. The arrest of one couple, Rasul and Maryam Abdullahi, left their two traumatized children as orphans. While Miriam was able to call her children, Rasul has not been heard from in 34 days as of this writing. And church leaders are extremely worried about him. Iranian Christians ask that their brothers and sisters in Christ around the world continue to pray for them as they face extreme pressure under the government's new policy of religious cleansing. One Christian who spent months in prison for his faith said, We felt your presence alongside us. Don't think your prayers are unimportant. Something I wasn't aware of before this past week was uh, that that thousands of Muslims are coming to Christ. There is apparently a movement of God among the Muslim (coughs) nations. And one Muslim cleric uh, recently commented in an interview with Al Jazeera that he estimated that um, 667 Muslims an hour, 16,000 a day, or 6 million a year are coming to Christ right now. Many in visions and, and uh, dreams and other supernatural occurrences that, uh, that uh, the prophet Joel uh, prophesied many years ago. 
At the same time, the Christian Watchdog Group Open Doors estimates that 176,000 Christians were martyred around the world in a one-year period between 2008 and 2009. That is, 482 Christians killed every day or one every three minutes. If you're like me, you thought that ended back in Acts 2 sometime. But uh, not the case, folks. Still continuing today. I'd like to take just a moment to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ and in those other countries. If if you'd pray along with me. Let's lift them up to the Lord. Father, our hearts break for our brothers and sisters in these Muslim countries and what they're going through, what it costs them to be disciples, to be Christians in in those lands where it's illegal even to, to be a Christian. Lord, you've said that in Psalm 34, 7, you said that the angel of the Lord encamps around those that fear him and rescues them. And Lord, we we pray that promise for them. We pray that uh, your angels would protect them, that uh, you'd frustrate the schemes of Satan and of those evil men who are are trying to destroy your church in in Iran and Indonesia and Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, the other places uh, where you're carrying out where you're bringing in your kingdom. Lord, we ask you to lift them up and to encourage them, to protect them physically, to restore them to their families, and, uh, and that your kingdom would come in those countries, that your spirit would go out in a powerful way. You pour out your spirit on those Muslim countries, and uh, that many would come to Christ as a result of the, the testimony of, of these who are suffering now. We ask these things in the, in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian, a Lutheran pastor during World War II, wrote a great book, a pivotal book in my spiritual experience called The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, in that book he said that when, when, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If you look at those, uh, those pictures... They look very much like us, don't they? Well, maybe a little younger, but very much like us. Uh, Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ in in Iran right now. Discipleship, the decision, the terms, and the cost, all those Christians who are losing their freedom, their possessions, their families, and their lives right now have one thing in common. They made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as as his disciples, no matter what the cost. Jesus made clear to us the terms for following him in, in Luke 9. He said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what if a man, what is a man profited if, if he gains the whole world and loses or, or forfeits himself? Jesus never left any doubt, did he, that the, the decision whether or not to follow him is one that is of monumental importance in our lives, uh, both for this life and, and the life to come. And, and that decision involves our willingness to, to give up everything we have, our uh, relationships, our possessions, 
our, our families in some cases, uh, in our lives, if, if, if need be. Uh, we're not often confronted with that. Sometimes uh, we think of hardship. In, in the American church, hardship is when the pastor runs over 10 minutes and we're, we're waiting to get to, to lunch. Uh, very different uh, elsewhere where it's illegal just to be a, a Christian. Well, Jesus and his disciples did kind of a cost-benefit analysis. You know, when you have a, a big decision to make in your personal life, sometimes you'll go through kind of a cost-benefit analysis. And uh, Peter did that with Jesus, too. Right after Jesus uh, commented on uh, how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You remember the camel through the eye of the needle? And uh, right after that, Peter said, well, kind of, what about us, Lord? And we see it in Mark 10, 28 through 31, Peter began to say to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So God has promised us an inheritance uh, beyond our, our wildest imagination. Theologian and author uh, Dallas Willard, who, who wrote uh, a couple of the books that I, I put on the, the reading list there for you, uh, one, was, one is The Great, the great Omission. Uh, he looked at it from the other direction. He, he said, what's the, in any good cost-benefit analysis, you, know, you look at what's the cost of not becoming a disciple? And he says this, non-discipleship costs abiding peace, a life penetrated throughout by love, faith that sees everything in the light of God's overriding governance for good, hopefulness that stands firm in the most discouraging of circumstances, power to do what is right and withstands the forces of evil. In short, non-discipleship costs you exactly that abundance of life that Jesus said he came to bring in John 10.10. The cross-shaped yoke of Christ is, after all, an instrument of liberation and power to those who live in it with him and learn the meekness and lowliness of heart that brings rest to the soul. Well, what is discipleship anyway? I I would define discipleship as a, a deliberate decision to commit my life to following Jesus Christ as his apprentice, In other words, as a learner or a student. For the purpose of learning from him how to live my daily life in his power as he would live it so that I am progressively transformed into his likeness in character and action. I'll say that fast three times. (laughs) Notice from that definition that discipleship is a lot more about being in a relationship that is transforming than it is doing. Discipleship is not another task list of things to do for God. Uh, That's not what he's after with us. He wants, first of all, for us to be in a relationship with him, a living relationship with him. And that's what Paul describes, uh, that empowering relationship is what Paul describes in Galatians 2.20, where he says that, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And get this. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, Jesus has offered to live his life through us. 
uh, as we step into that discipleship relationship with him. That's why in spite of the the hardships that uh, disciples encounter, Jesus can say that his yoke is light. You know what a yoke is? doesn't have anything to do with an egg. A a yoke is the the beam that someone would carry across their shoulders to carry a couple buckets of water, for example, or that an ox would have or a a pair of oxen would have over their shoulders as as they pulled something heavy. That's what a yoke is. And so Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. There's, there's no one here like that this morning, is there? There, there are always needs in a, in a church like this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Folks, uh, the yoke is easy and the burden is light because Jesus is carrying it for us. And, and that's, that's what he offers to do for us. Uh, and when we step into that discipleship relationship with him. Now the primary mission of the church is, is to make disciples. Michael alluded to that this morning in, uh, in Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20 in the Great Commission. Let's read it again. It says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Notice a couple things about this command. Uh, First of all, Jesus didn't say, did he, "I, I want you to go out and sign up church members so that we can have uh, large churches. He said, he said, make disciples. Being a member of a church doesn't guarantee that a person will be a disciple any, any more than spending extended, extended periods of time in your garage will guarantee that uh, you'll be a car. It doesn't work like that. Jesus didn't say either, teach them to observe all the religious practices of your particular denomination. He didn't say that either. He said, make disciples. He said, teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. He also didn't, notice he didn't provide two levels of commitment. This isn't a cafeteria plan where you can check the box as to the options you want. He says, either you're going to follow me or you're not. That's the only option. There's not a basic Christian package where you can kind of get your fire insurance and then hang around and tell heaven. It isn't like that. Jesus calls us to discipleship. Every one of us who would take the name of, of Christian. There aren't any uber-spiritual people who are going to be disciples and the rest of us just wait in the cheap seats. It doesn't work like that. So what, a discipleship, uh, what does discipleship look like lived out? And, and what do disciples look like and, and act like? What does it mean when Jesus says, everything I've commanded you? What exactly is that? Well, actually, there are over 200 commands that, that Jesus gave us, that Jesus gave his disciples in the, in the Gospels. A great place to start is with Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to ask you to, to turn there. It'll be on your screen as well. But Matthew 5, now we're going to be talking about the Beatitudes and the other commands that Jesus gave there. 
in, uh, in Matthew 5, which is called the, the Sermon on the Mount, there are what are called uh, Beatitudes or, or declarations of blessedness. Now, blessedness meant in the context in which Jesus said it and the way it would have been understood at that time is not just um, a transient kind of a happiness uh, based on external circumstances. The, the, the blessedness that Jesus talked about was the, the overwhelming, transcendent, supernatural kind of joy and peace that transcends uh, external circumstances. In other words, that you have in spite of, of uh, what's going on around you. That level of, of joy and peace and, uh, and happiness. And so beginning in verse 1, Scripture tells us that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, the first beatitude, the first statement of blessedness, declaration of blessedness, blessed are the poor in spirit, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Think of these things as character traits that Jesus is looking to see in, in his disciples. And this is a, a good example of how Jesus' teaching was shocking in his day. Because the poverty of spirit we're talking about here refers to the humility that comes from knowing that when we come to God, we come with empty hands. We come bringing nothing to the table. There is nothing we can offer God uh, to, uh, to, to cause him to... Uh, give us eternal life. It's, it's completely by grace as a free gift. And, and that poverty of spirit is what God's looking for, knowing that we come to him with nothing. And that was very different from what uh, um, the Jews at that time uh, saw in their religious leaders because they were all about self-sufficiency. Their righteousness consisted in the way that they acted from day to day. And they depended on that in, in order to to earn favor with God, to merit favor with God. And what Jesus is saying is, that's, that's not what I need to see. Because there is no one. Scripture tells us there is, there is none of us uh, that, that can approach God in that way. Um, Romans 3.23 says, uh, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And none of us can, can meet the standard of God's perfection that he requires in order for us to have a relationship with him. We're all spiritually bankrupt when we come to him. And it, and it speaks to, to those in, in our day, too, who think that they can please God because they're pretty good people. And I hear this again and again. When I begin talking with somebody about where they are spiritually, I hear usually, well, I, you know, I've always been kind of a spiritual person, and I, I'm a pretty good person. What they mean by that is they haven't shown up in Crime Stoppers, you know, <laughs> that, that, that they haven't done anything that bad. And so if God grades on the curve, I'll be okay. Well, someone said that to me recently, and I, and I said, you know, uh, Scripture tells us that he, Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto every man once to die, and after that, the judgment. And, and when you stand before God, and, and this particular person had a terminal disease, and I, I said, it, it apparently won't be long for you. But when you stand before God, there's only one thing that's going to matter. He, he's going to ask, did you have a relationship with my son as, as your Savior? And if you did, he'll say, Welcome to the inheritance that I've prepared for you. And if not, he'll say, get away from me. You're eternally separated from me. And you're going to a place of torment that Scripture describes as, as hell. 
It's the only thing that will matter. And so uh, God doesn't grade on the curve. His yardstick is perfection. The only thing that will matter is whether we know Jesus is Savior or not. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the, the uh, mourning that's referred to here is a, the sorrow and, and repentance that we express to God over our sin. Certainly when we come to Christ, originally, we, part, part of the package is we recognize that uh, we're imperfect people, that we've offended God in, in many ways and that uh, we, we cannot establish a holy relation, uh, relationship with a holy God on our own. We, we need Jesus as our substitute to do that. And, and that's what this mourning refers to, a genuine attitude of repentance and grief only over our own sin, not only uh, when we come to Christ, but on an ongoing basis. 1 John 1, 9 says to us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, Right? That has to happen on an ongoing basis. We clear the books on an ongoing basis with God to stay in fellowship with him. Uh, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And that refers to an attitude of meekness, gentleness, and humility before God. Again, another characteristic that that, uh, Jesus wants to see in us as disciples. It it doesn't refer to to weakness. Now, uh, the the word meekness was applied to Jesus Christ. The the word... uh, Humble was applied to Moses. Moses was said to be the, the most humble man in the world at, at the time. That's what Scripture tells us. Neither of those guys were, were weak, were they? they? They were strong people. But uh, the, the concept of uh, meekness and gentleness and humility speaks to power under control. That's the idea, power under control. And, and again, this would have been in sharp contrast to the uh, religious leaders of, of the day and to our own culture, you know, where we're, where we're uh, encouraged to assert ourselves, to demand our rights, don't let anybody run over you. Well, that, that kind of humility uh, turns that all on its head. You see, that's what Jesus is looking for in, in his disciples. And, and Jesus pulled that teaching in particular right out of Psalm 37, verse 11, where it reads, But the humble will inherit the land and will delight themselves in abundant prosperity. God wants us to act humbly, and then he will intervene on our behalf when that's necessary. There's a, it, it's all about where we're going to put our trust. In, in our own, are we going to turn it into a do-it-yourself project, or, or are we going to let God act on our behalf? There's a great story in, um, in the book Radical by David Platt. Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. I read recently. Uh, he's a pastor down in, um, I want to say Atlanta, but no, it's Birmingham, Alabama, a big church down in Birmingham, Alabama. But he travels extensively as well. And uh, in this particular case, he talks about being in Indonesia. He went to speak at a, the graduation of an Indonesian seminary class. Now, Indonesia uh, has the, uh, is the biggest, the largest Muslim population in the world. So there's no more difficult place to, to uh, plant a, a church, certainly, than places in, in Indonesia. In fact, these, these seminary grads, in order to graduate from this seminary class, they had to successfully plant a church uh, with 30 baptized believers in a Muslim community. That, that's what you had to do to, to graduate. There was a moment of silence during the graduation seminary as they mourned the loss of uh, two of their 
graduating class who were killed by Muslim persecutors while they were trying to, to uh, plant a church in those communities. But one of the, uh, one of the ser- seminarians' name was uh, Raiden. And uh, Raiden, before he came to Christ, was apparently a martial artist and quite a fighter, a successful fighter. And uh, he shared that with David Platt, the author of this book. And, uh, and Platt uh, asked him a little bit more about it. And, and Raiden told him about his experience going into one of these Muslim communities to plant a church. He, he said that on, on one day he was sharing the gospel in an unreached village with people who had never heard of Jesus. He was in one house sharing Christ with a family, and the witch doctor from the village came to the house. Witch doctors and magic men are common in villages like these. They hold sway over entire communities with their curses and incantations. The witch doctor called me out, Raiden said. He wanted me to fight him. Raiden smiled as he confessed. My first thought was to walk out there and take the witch doctor down. But when I turned to go outside, the the Lord told me, that I, I no longer need to do the fighting. God would do the fighting for me. So Raiden walked outside, pulled up a chair, and sat down in front of the witch doctor. He told his challenger, I don't do the fighting. My God does the fighting for me. Raiden recounted what happened next. As the witch doctor attempted to speak, he began to gasp for air. He was choking and couldn't breathe. People came running to see what was wrong, and within a few minutes... The witch doctor had fallen over dead. By now, the entire village had crowded around the scene. Raiden said, I had never seen anything like this, and I didn't know what to do. But, but then I thought, I guess this is a good time to preach the gospel. <laughs> so that's what I did. And many people in that village trusted in Christ for the first time that day. Platt goes on to say, no, I'm not recommending this as a new church growth methodology. Making pronouncements on people that lead to their deaths just doesn't seem to be the best way to go about things. But this story was a clear reminder to me that 2,000 years ago when believers proclaimed the name of Jesus, it caused the blind to see, the lame to walk, and the dead to rise. The name of Jesus had the power to cause evil spirits to flee and to bring the most hardened hearts to God. And the reality is 2,000 years later, The power of Jesus' name is still great. Amen? The question for us then is whether we will trust in his power. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied in verse 6. The phrase hunger and thirst here means to desire strongly. That's what the Greek means. You know, about about, uh, 20 days into the the recent 60-day challenge, by the way, if you're if you're persevering in the 60-day challenge, the end of that 60 days is March 2. I see some of you nodding. You know that. About, about 20 days into the 60-day challenge, I, I talked with a young man at the church here, and he said that uh, he was doing a 60-day challenge. I said, well, great. That's wonderful. And read through the New Testament, you know, in 60 days. And uh, he said, in fact, I'm already done with it. So what do you mean you're already done with it? It's only, we're only 20 days into it. He said, yeah, I finished it in 15 days. <clears throat> and my first thought was, he reminded me of a, an overachiever that was really annoying in the fifth grade. <laughs> and, and my second thought was from the Holy Spirit. And he gave me the, the verse, 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now, what what uh, that young man uh, showed me was the hunger he had for God and for God's things. He can't learn fast enough. He, he still can't. Uh, if uh, that's one of the trademarks of, of a disciple of Jesus Christ, is they, they want to know about the things of God. They, they want to know more of God. And, uh, and they'll, they have an insatiable appetite for it. If you had that at one time, if you've never had that, um, you may not yet be born again. We'll cover that in a moment. If, if you had that at one time and you don't anymore, ask God for it, and he will give it back to you. And, and as, an, as an aside, I would say, also, uh, start to take in the word of God, and he will give you a desire for his things. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And the meaning here is to be quick to forgive. And again, this turns not only the, the culture of the day on its head, uh, but our culture as well. Uh, because, you know, we're, we're encouraged to stick up for ourselves and not to let anybody run over us and to push back hard when, when somebody pushes us. And what Jesus is saying here is uh, just the opposite. Jesus' promise in Matthew 6.14 is, if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Be slow to take offense. That especially should be true within the church. That uh, as the disciples of Christ, one of the ways in which we distinguish ourselves from the world is that uh, the love that we project to the people around us, even when they don't deserve it, especially when they don't deserve it. Blessed are the pure in heart, uh, for they shall see God. You know, our culture says again, and our television programs reflect this, it says, entertain yourselves by looking at whatever excites and entertains you, what can it hurt, right? But what God says to those of us who would be his disciples is that we need to be careful about what we put in our minds and even what we think about because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we've got to keep that temple pure if we're going to see God. You see, it says in, the, in verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That doesn't mean just see God in heaven. That means uh, your sensitivity to the Holy Spirit in your life and God's work in your life from day to day. If, if the temple is not pure, if, if you allow it to be contaminated with all kinds of stuff uh, that, that takes your affection away from God, uh, you'll, you'll be much less sensitive to his work in your life. John Wesley said once, uh, worldliness is whatever cools my affection toward God. Worldliness is whatever cools my affection toward God. Proverbs 4.22 says much the same thing. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And, and then again in Psalm 101.3, I will set no evil thing before my eyes. Some of us are, are very meticulous about what we put in our mouths. <clears throat> Me not so much. Uh, but, but others, uh, especially, very meticulous about that because they're very concerned about fitness and nutrition, and that's all good. I'm suggesting we need to be just as meticulous about what we put in our minds because it shapes our character as disciples of Jesus Christ. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, again, in, in our culture... Our, our culture and media and entertainment right now 
uh, glorify violent confrontation, in my view. And I don't know that that's always constructive for a person who would be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and I, frankly, as a, as a policeman, a former policeman, I, I spent big chunks of my life learning how to fight in different kinds of disciplines. But I, I would say that the preoccupation with violent confrontation uh, in our entertainment is, uh, is something that takes us away from the, uh, the character trait of being a peacemaker that, uh, that Jesus is, uh, expects us to model as, as his disciples. In, in Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace. Christ wants to be that peace in, in our lives. Now, if we reflect all the above uh, character qualities that we just talked about, those are the character qualities of a disciple. If we reflect those, <clears throat> excuse me, if we reflect those character qualities, Jesus says, you're going to run into some trouble. You know, and Jesus didn't say, uh, you're just going to, you know, there might be a couple speed bumps, you know, you may, want, wind up, you may run into somebody who doesn't like you. No, he said, in this world you will have trouble. He said, if they hated me, they will hate you. He says in verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who went before you. And and then in the next few verses, uh, Jesus reveals what God's purpose for us is in discipleship. Verses 13 through 16, he says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There it is. I mean, that's the mission of disciples. It's not so much about us. Yes, God is very interested in maturing us into images, into the image of Jesus Christ. That's all true. But God has a larger plan than that. That The reason why he needs us, wants us to reflect the image of Jesus Christ in this world is because it will be so counterculture to what what we see around us that... Uh, uh, we need to be disciples and demonstrate these character qualities so that other people will be drawn to God uh, through our testimony, through through the way that we walk. Jesus' reference to salt that's lost its saltiness and and the lamp under the basket is to those Christians, those believers who failed to become apprentices of Jesus Christ and therefore fail to evidence the life of God in them to the people around them. They're indistinguishable to the rest of the world. If you're not evidencing those character qualities, you're indistinguishable from the rest of the world. And in that sense, useless to God for the purpose of drawing other people to himself. And you know, the the misconception in the American church is that uh, we're saved by grace. So once we're saved by grace and we have our fire insurance, 
uh, then we can just kind of sit on the bench and wait for the bus to heaven. I don't think, excuse me, I don't think Scripture supports that. In fact, uh, Dallas Willard in the book, uh, The Great Omission, says uh, we're not only saved by grace, we're paralyzed by it. And and what he means by that is that that sometimes we think that uh, once we become saved, once we become Christians, then uh, we just wait for God to do a work in our lives. We wait for God's Holy Spirit to to dump this discipleship, uh, the life of Christ on us, and make us look like Jesus Christ. Well, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. But God makes it clear in Scripture that we need to collaborate with the Holy Spirit in transforming us into the image of of Christ. The the way that grace operates in our lives is not just to save us initially, but it's also to transform the way that we live from day to day. That's what discipleship is all about. We saw that in the the passage that uh, Mark taught from a couple weeks ago in Titus. Titus uh, 2, verses 11 through 14, where it says, And listen closely. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's the first part, right? That's grace for salvation. And then the second part. Here's the other shoe. Instructing us, that is teaching us, how to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. Again, salvation. And now here's the other shoe. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. It could say, to purify himself disciples, zealous for good deeds. That's what that's referring to. His grace is intended not just to save us, but to to transform us. And here's an idea that uh, I just want to plant with you. I don't have time to explore it today, but I want to plant this as a seed with you. Have you considered... The idea that, have you considered the link between our fruitfulness here as Jesus' disciples and our rewards and responsibilities in heaven? It has nothing to do with salvation. You can't earn your salvation. It comes by grace. It's a free gift. But once we get past that, once we're children of God, have you considered the, the relationship between our fruitfulness as children of God here and our, our level of maturity in Christ, the degree to which we've been transformed in the image of Christ, and what responsibilities God will assign us in heaven, and what rewards he will have for us in heaven. Have you considered that? Start with the parable of the talents when you go to explore that. The remainder of Matthew 5, uh, 5, uh, 6, and 7, I'd encourage you, I'm going to give you some homework that that you can go into uh, later this afternoon or or this week. Use that in in your quiet time with God. It contains some practical examples of those character traits of discipleship that are lived out. I'm going to give you a sampling right here, uh, paraphrased. Jesus says, this is what it means to, to, to demonstrate those character traits that, that I talked about in the Beatitudes. <clears throat> He's saying, first of all, don't become angry and speak disparagingly of other people. You'll find these in Matthew 5 and 6. Make friends with your opponents before they take you to court. Don't even look at a woman in a way that is inappropriate. Don't divorce your wife for reasons other than unfaithfulness, if even then. And you have to understand the culture at that time, 
the Pharisees had put ordinances in place that allowed them to divorce their wives if they burned a meal for, for trivial matters. And uh, Jesus said, that's wrong. That's not what God intended at all. He said, don't make silly oaths. Let your word be your bond. Don't resist an evil person by returning evil for evil. If someone sues you, give them more than what they ask for. Huh? What? You see how that, that turns conventional wisdom on its head, both in the culture of the day and in our culture as well? If someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. It was common practice at the time for uh, a Roman soldier at the time to commandeer a, a local citizen and say, I want you to carry my gear for the next mile. What Jesus was saying was, when they do that to you, um, cheerfully carry it a second mile. Lend freely to people who want to borrow from you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray and give to the poor in secret so that no one will know except God. The Pharisees were good at putting on a show in both prayer and the way that they gave to the poor so that everyone would know how, how they were the uber-spiritual of the time. And what Jesus said is, do those things in secret. God will reward you for those uh, in secret as well. Now, if you're thinking, that, you know, that behavior is not humanly possible, Gary. How can God possibly expect us to live like that in this world? Th that's exactly the point. It's not humanly possible. You and I can't gin up that, that kind of behavior. It, it has to come uh, through the power of God, uh, living that uh, kind of a life, that, that discipleship kind of a life out in our lives. It's Galatians 2.20 all over again, where Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus stands ready to live out his life, perfect holiness, perfect patience, perfect love, perfect humility, perfect gentleness. All those characteristics of a disciple are there in Jesus Christ. And he's, he's waiting to live them out through our lives. As soon as we acknowledge, Lord, I can't do this in this situation. All of you think for a moment about the most annoying person in your life. Maybe at work, could be a family member. Uh, but for whatever reason, the person you find most difficult to love and I, I'm suggesting to you that uh, if you'll take a step back and in prayer say, God, I can't do this. I, I cannot, on a human level, I cannot love this person the way that you want me to love them. But I, I know that you're ready to do that through me. And I'm going to ask you, by the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that you'll live out the love of Jesus Christ and the compassion and the humility and the patience and everything else that you want to see in my life, that you'll live that out through me, to that other person in my life. God will do that for you. God will do that for you. And that, that's how it's done. So, so how do I become a disciple? Well, it begins with being born again. And Jesus made that clear. We, you know, churches didn't make up that phrase. Uh, Jesus in John 3, 3, he was speaking with a religious leader who should have known better. And, and he said... Uh, he, he was questioning how to find favor with God, and, and Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 3, 3. Would, uh, would you take out this little booklet from your, from your bulletin? 
Each of you got one of these when your bulletin. It says on the front of it, how to become a Christian. You know, these, uh, you, don't see, you don't see these around very much anymore, but um, this is, uh, for someone who's wondering how to be born again, or for someone who would like to, to tell someone else how to be born again, it's a great resource. If you'll spend a, a few minutes this afternoon, perhaps, looking through the scripture verses, what it does is, is lay out God's plan, uh, how God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's God's plans for, for salvation. That's how we become born again. And, and the problem of sin in our lives, how none of us are acceptable. None of us can meet God's standard of perfection. And then that sin has a penalty, that God put in place a plan for his son to, to come and die so that Jesus could pay that penalty for us so that we could be declared not guilty, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And, and finally, that we have to receive Christ. That's what it means to be, to be born again. There's even a little prayer on the back. The past few weeks, I've led two guys to, uh, to Christ using this little booklet. And... and uh, it's just a matter of explaining to them the various steps. And for those of you who are believers, uh, this might be a valuable, um, I hesitate to use the word prop, but a, a valuable tool that, that you can use in relating to somebody around you who does not yet know Jesus Christ. And you can use it to, to, to uh, help draw them to Christ. Use it prayerfully and, and pray uh, to God about the opportunity, to present the opportunity to you uh, but then look for that opportunity and say, hey, would you mind if I shared something with you? And you can bring another person into the kingdom. If there's someone here who does not yet know Christ and, and you would like to pray to receive Christ this morning, I'd be happy to meet with you right after the service this morning. But you have to be, my point is that in order to be a disciple, you, you have to be born again in order to be able to comprehend the spiritual truths that, that, that you need to understand. And disciples, disciples make other disciples. 1 Peter 3.15 says to us, uh, sanctify or, or set apart Christ in your heart as Lord, always being ready to make a defense. Another version says um, to make an answer to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Uh, there are people around us who are far from God that if we will pray for them, the Holy Spirit will work in their hearts. They'll become sensitive to the gospel. You'll have the opportunity to talk with them about Jesus Christ and, and to bring them to, to faith. And the second step in uh, discipleship is simply telling Jesus that you want to follow him. I, I want to be your apprentice. I want to learn from you how to live and follow you for the rest of my life, no matter what the cost. And, and then there's the matter of how do we move ahead? How do we... Uh, act like disciples? How do we learn to, to be the apprentices of Jesus Christ? And, and that's a, a matter of training. It's, it's not trying. This isn't something that we can gin up. It isn't another do-it-yourself project. Well, I'll just work harder, and, and that way I'll be more Christ-like. That won't work. And Paul discovered that, didn't he, in Romans 7, where he says that, uh, the Apostle Paul, where he says that, you know, the good things that I, I'm trying to do, those I can't do, the evil things that I'd rather not do, those are the things that I do all the time. 
So he, he said, what shall I do? Romans 8 answers the question, of course. But the point is that uh, simply trying harder is not the answer. Training is the answer. Uh, again, we, we don't come to the place where we uh, become believers and, and where the account is settled, we're, uh, we're headed for heaven, and then just stop. Uh, God expects us to, to learn to be like Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I've often admired the way that Michael Glenn plays the piano. I, I often told him I could just sit and listen to him play the piano for a couple hours. He, he's, he's that good. But uh, I could say, I could suggest to you, why don't you all show up here next week and, and I'll, I'll play the piano and, and I'm going to be as good as Michael because I'm really going to try hard this week. Well, you all, you all look skeptical already. And, and rightly so, because no amount of trying will make me as good as Michael Glenn. You see, Michael has spent years training and, and disciplining himself to be that kind of a pianist. He has paid the price to be that good. And, and in our spiritual lives as well, we have to, we have to train in order to be godly, in, in order to be uh, disciples who are always learning about how to be more like Jesus Christ. In fact, uh, Scripture tells us that clearly. 1 Timothy 4, 7 He says, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, including promise for both the present life and the life to come. So so it's a matter of training. Well, how do we train? When we train physically, we have weights and and, uh, uh, treadmills and weight machines and other kinds of devices that we use to give us the intended effect, make bigger muscles, make us more flexible, make us more aerobically fit, uh, all those things that we're looking for in fitness. But what about our spiritual fitness? Well, what do we do with regard to that if we're going to train? Well, there are spiritual disciplines. Uh, just like the disciplines that enabled Michael to, to acquire his musical skill or that enable a person to be uh, uh, fit physically, there are, are disciplines that uh, cause us um, to uh, or put us in a position of being with Jesus in the same way his disciples were with him as his apprentices and allow us to learn from him. They're, they're the, the means that, that we can a- accomplish things by, by indirect effort, what we can't accomplish through a, a direct effort, that is, Christ-likeness. And, and to be clear again, spiritual disciplines do not uh, earn our salvation. That, that's already, that debt has been paid. For by grace are you saved, through faith, that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not, uh, not of works that, that no one should boast, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? We can't do anything to, etern- uh, to, to uh, earn it eternal life, but uh, we, we can train for, for godliness. And, and God's promised us that the Holy Spirit will be our teacher. He says in uh, John fourteen twenty six. Uh, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. What spiritual disciplines allow us to do is, John Ortberg says in The Life You Always Wanted, he says it, it, they put us in the way of the Holy Spirit. Much as, as uh, you would step into a rushing stream if you really wanted to, to become wet and, and refreshed. These put us in the way of the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can do his work in our, our lives. 
again, in 1 John 2.27, John tells us, As for you, the anointing, that is the Holy Spirit, which you have received from him, abides in you. You have no need for anyone to teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about all things, and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, so abide in him. So our, our task becomes, how do we put ourselves in the way of the Holy Spirit so the Holy Spirit can teach us? You know, I'm going to talk uh, more about those spiritual disciplines uh, in another message, but uh, just four quick ones here. First of all, solitude and, and silence. Those are uh, lost commodities in our world today, aren't they? I, I know that many of you work at very busy jobs, and you have very busy lives. And uh, it's very difficult to carve out white space. We fill our lives with noise and distraction, typically. And we run at a fast pace. And I'm, I'm suggesting if your life with God is going to be um, better uh, next year than it is today, then you need to carve out some white space. You and I need to carve out some white space in our lives. 15, uh, 20 minutes, a half hour each day when we can be alone with God and the, the Holy Spirit can teach us. Uh, God says in, in for, Psalm 46.10, uh, Be still and know that I am God. The Holy Spirit will not compete with CNN and high-fiber cereal on your way to work in the morning. It, it's got to be some time that's carved out and set apart. We have to make time for that. Mark, Mark 4.19, remember the parable of the sower where Jesus says, uh, talks about fruitfulness and, and what causes us as disciples to be fruitful, and what keeps us from being fruitful. Mark 4:19. Jesus identified three things that keep us from being fruitful as disciples. He says in Mark 4:19, the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Doesn't that say it all? I, I mean... It's easy to, it will be easy to arrive at the end of a life and in a flash, as we're standing before God, realize what might have been in terms of what God wanted to do through our lives. The, the, the degree to which he wanted to transform us into the image of Jesus. The things he wanted to accomplish through us for the kingdom and we realize that we, were, we spent our lives distracted by minutia and noise and, and things we entertained ourselves with. Solitude and silence. If our lives are going to be fruitful as disciples of Jesus, we need to allow time to focus our attention on growing in our life with God. Solitude and silence are the first two. Uh, the third is, of course, get the word of God into your life through reading, meditation, memorization. And you can do that in that time of solitude and silence. Uh, read a chapter, read a section, read a few verses. Uh, that's why I challenge you to read through the New Testament. Take in big chunks of the word. But you don't have to, to do that every day. Just uh, uh, ask God to open the word to you and teach you in that quiet time in the morning. And then jot down a couple in, insights in your journal as to what he's taught you, how he's encouraged you, uh, what he's brought to mind that he, that he wants you to know. The, the word of God is a living book. It is supernatural in its power to transform your lives. But it can't happen unless you crack the book and get into it and find out what God has to say to you. I found, too, and I'd recommend this to you, memorizing key passages. A good way to start would be that little booklet I gave you today. Those, if you'll memorize those verses, the Holy Spirit will use those in your life 
uh, not only for you, but will we'll prepare you then to share those with other people at the moment when you need them, they will come to mind. But the Holy Spirit can't use those as tools in your life if you don't know them. So I'd encourage you to, to memorize and meditate on Scripture as well. And then finally, prayer. Prayer is uh, uh, the means by which we communicate with God. We claim a promise. Uh, we ask Him for what we need. We simply listen in silence sometimes for the Holy Spirit to leave an impression on our hearts as, as to what God's trying to teach us. And prayer is not just for asking. This is important. Prayer is not just for asking, but it is also the conduit by which God passes us his peace. Remember Philippians 4, 6, and 7, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all comprehension, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. You see, God passes his peace to us in response to prayer. So you have to be in prayer if you're going to have his peace and, and his joy. Well, the Apostle Paul describes the outcome of our apprenticeship to Jesus Christ, which is our gradual transformation into his likeness over time. And he describes that explicitly in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. In other words, as we look on Jesus, as we learn from him, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And, and the, the, the image that you are of Jesus Christ will have more glory next week than it does right now if you're growing with him. From transforming us into the same image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. It's a picture uh, of how God works in our lives to transform us into the image of Jesus Christ step by step from glory to glory. To glory, so that other people will say of us as they did of the original disciples, that person's been with Jesus. I can tell. Let's close with prayer, shall we? I'm going to pray the same prayer for you that uh, the Apostle Paul prayed for the Colossian Christians in Colossians 1. Father, I thank you for the opportunity to, to uh, meet together today and not have to worry about uh, going to prison or losing our families or any of the other things that our brothers and sisters are suffering elsewhere. And, and Lord, I, I, pray as, I, I pray for all of us here today as, as Paul prayed for the Colossian Christians. I, I pray that, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord we pray to please you in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to you as our Father, who's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For you rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to live as your disciples, and, and we ask that uh, by your Holy Spirit's power, you'd evidence the life of Jesus in, in each one of us. We ask it in your name. Amen.